From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The annual Music Midtown Festival takes place this weekend, and throughout its 25-year history, yep, it launched in 1994, A-list acts like Coldplay, Pearl Jam, Elton John, and Drake have all played to crowds at Atlanta's Piedmont Park. And as a part of GBB's September Music Series, we're bringing in some of the Georgia acts playing at the festival this year. Atlanta native Faye Webster is among them. You can catch her Music Midtown performance on Saturday at 2.15 at the Roxy Stage. You're listening to her song Room Temperature from her new album Atlanta Millionaires Club as we welcome Faye Webster to the studio. Hi there. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so nice to see you. We've been trying to get you on the show for a long time. Here I am. I guess you move around a lot. I do. I definitely do. You so the Atlanta Millionaires Club. I'm really curious about. Is this a, like a velvet rope place that none of us who don't make millions of dollars know about? No, it's just what my dad and his college friends called each other. What? <laughs> they just were like him and like 18 of his best friends. They made this club when they were in college called the Atlanta Millionaires Club, and like to this day, they're still all friends. Every time I meet one at like a wedding or something, he'll be like, this is an old millionaire. Ah, I see. Like, Are they like lighting cigarettes it. with $100 yeah, bills? Yeah, I know. That's what they wish they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> Counting stacks of money. It is your third album, even though you're just 21 years old. And there's a lot of heartbreak on this one. Truly. <laughs> In fact, there's one that you sing. My mother told me she's tired of my sad songs. Yeah. <laughs> my mom and my dad will always be like, they would come to my shows and afterwards they'd be like, Faye, are you, you okay? really need some happier songs. <laughs> is it, but they are lonesomer, these, these songs. Is, is this life on the road? Is this being a musician, um, working all the time? I all of Atlanta Millionaires Club when I like left home and then left college and for the first time in 21 years was living by myself oh. and not being surrounded by anybody all day long which <laughs> was like very dramatic for me dramatic change i think that's where that come from well the, the, your songs are they, they sound very personal they sound like they're about your life uh it, you know i know sometimes with artists that's that's a little bit of a play um but do you think if somebody listens to your song like they would know faye webster I think so. I kind of think about all these like eyes and ears on me. I think it would be like a missed opportunity if I didn't. Really? It doesn't feel like you're exposing something? It definitely does feel like I'm exposing myself to everybody in the world. But I feel like that's what will make people relate to me more and make my music more heartfelt to them, which is all I really want. Well, let's air some of it. This is from Atlanta Millionaires Club. It's called Kingston. this kind of laid-back instrumentation, I think, to your songs. Pedal steel guitar, which is a country music staple. Did you grow up with country music? I did. I grew up, uh, my mom's from Texas, so we listened to a lot of, like, western swing music. Mm -hmm. And I grew up just, like, going to all these concerts and, like, sitting in front of pedal steel players, <laughs> just, like, drooling at this, like, sound of this insane instrument. So 
my past three records, I was like, we have to have pedal steel on every song. Well, I want to talk about your past three records because there's a real difference. You, I mean, your first one, I think, a, a much more straight up sort of folky, but you were 16 years old at the time. Your second one, you made it on a hip hop label on Awful Records. What was that like? What was behind that decision? Are you, you know, young artists trying a lot of different things out? Um, I think just like growing up in Atlanta, being exposed to all these like very diverse situations, I think it just subconsciously kind of woven itself into my music. When we record the song, we like record it live and there's like no instructions. Really? Just like here, let's see what it sounds like. And then we just record it how it is calling to sound like. Huh. So they must sound a lot like they probably sound like when you're live. You're playing it yeah. in that moment. I hope they do. <laughs> You said growing up in Atlanta, is there a way that, I don't know, this town encourages those crossovers? Definitely. I think everybody here is so creative. Every single one of my friends in Atlanta does something that's so cool. Really? <laughs> yeah, and I think just like growing up and just having a lifetime supply of friends from Atlanta, I feel like we all just like teach each other things. Well, I think this is a perfect opportunity to play Come to Atlanta. <laughs> Speaking with Georgia native Faye Webster, her new album is called Atlanta Millionaires Club, and she's going to be performing at Music Midtown this Saturday at 2.15. It takes a lot to get out in front of people, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. you were, I, I know you were winning Eddie's Attic shootouts when you were 14 years old. I used to just like go up on stage and play my song and just turn around and leave. <laughs> I was like very uncomfortable for sure. <laughs> Was there anybody encouraging, you know, like coaching you to like, Faye, you have to really like dazzle him on the stage. Do you, Definitely do, do my you, dad. <laughs> he's the, the man from the Millionaire's Club. Definitely my dad. <laughs> then you released this first record, Run and Tell, at age 16. Let's hear some of that. This is Give Me a Chance. This is my There is a show, Mortified, where people go back and read their diaries from when they were in middle school, you know, and how you know, <laughs> yeah. mortified they are. But, but So when you hear the songs that you were writing at that time, do you feel like, oh my God, I was just a kid? Or what do you think? For sure. I feel like my first record, to me, is kind of just like this bad tattoo. But I don't want to get rid of it because it represented me at a point in my life. Yeah. But also, when I wrote that, I was way less honest and like scared to like actually say stuff i'm not like embarrassed but i think it took time for me to like actually open up in my songwriting and like if people are going to listen like i'm going to tell them something but you actually started by studying songwriting when you were in college and then switched to art direction and photography so why why that switch when i got to college i was like what am i going to do with the songwriting degree <laughs> People are either going to listen to my music or they're not going to listen to it. I don't know. I feel like I was wasting time and I was like in this city that was like foreign to me. And so when I knew I was going to leave and go home. You were home, where? Belmont? Belmont in Nashville. Nashville. Uh -huh. 
um, when I realized I was going to leave and go home, I just like stocked up on electives and like switched to graphic design, which is great because now I like make my merch. Work it's fantastic merch yeah, it's too. Very individualized <laughs> stuff. Patches and all hand done like little banner flags. They're just gorgeous. And you've also photographed portraits of a lot of other local talent like Killer Mike and Little Yachty. How do you how do you engage with storytelling in music versus photography, do you think? Hmm. Photography is kind of different. I feel like you're not really allowed to explain and the viewer is the one that's trying to figure it out yeah. which i think is kind of cool but in my music it's like listen <laughs> here's what's up <laughs> this, this is how this are. happened yeah <laughs> well little yaddy will also be performing at music midtown this weekend how are how are you feeling about your upcoming performance i'm very excited mm-hmm. i'm very excited my parents well, are gonna come you've been all over the place so is it yeah. what's it like to play to a hometown audience now um I don't know. I haven't played. There was like two years where I just didn't even play in Atlanta because I was touring so much. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited that Music Midtown is like the show that I'm playing That's in my own town. Yeah. Do you have memories of Music Midtown when you were growing up seeing bands? Yeah, for that sure. Just blew your mind. We would like my parents live in Piedmont Park, so we just like walk outside and like watch all the sound checks, just like elbows on the fence. <laughs> all right. So I do know. I happen to notice that you brought your little guitar with you. See. <laughs> <laughs> so you can do a little performance for us now. What do you want to play? What used to be mine.
All right, since you're you're bearing your soul, do you want to tell us who that song is about? Uh, it's just about like I don't know. It's not like a harsh like breakup and we're mad. It's just like here are the things. That's like this is what reminds me of you, and it's just like a remember one kind of song. I feel like. Yeah, and being in a place like you said, Atlanta, sort of surrounded by memories. Yeah. That's you you've grown up at a really interesting time in Atlanta. There have been so many transformations here, but you speak of it very warmly and very sort of communally. Do you still feel like it has that for you? Yeah. I mean Atlanta changes every day so fast. <laughs> it's like I still love Atlanta. I still see myself here in the next five, ten years. So I don't know, it's very bittersweet, but it's like, it definitely feels like home to me. That is Atlanta native Faye Webster. Her new album is called Atlanta Millionaires Club. She's going to be hitting the stage at Music Midtown in Piedmont Park on Saturday at 2.15. Do not miss it. Faye, thank you so much. Thank you. Now, this conversation is part of a month-long series that GPB is doing all about music, and we're talking about jazz and rock, and there's even a little bit of experimental music coming your way. You can follow along with our coverage and join the conversation with the hashtag GPBLovesMusic. You can also find more on our Facebook group GPB Radio's On Second Thought or on our Twitter page at OSD Talk. Tell us who is your favorite Georgia artist or someone coming to Georgia. Who do you want to see? Who do you want to listen to? And this is Faye Webster playing one more for us. This is Right Side of My Neck as we head into a short break. But stick around for more of On Second Thought. Not told you even paid. Right side of my neck still smells like you. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. The fall semester is underway for college students, and Georgia's home to more than 50 colleges, nine of them historically black colleges or universities. And among them, Morris Brown College is currently seeking re-accreditation. For more than a century, HBCUs provided the foundation for countless dynamic and influential leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Chadwick Boseman, and Oprah Winfrey. Now some academic finance experts predict that a quarter of those schools could be gone within 20 years. Ernie Suggs has reported on the ups and downs of HBCUs for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ernie Suggs came into the studio to talk about the status of Morris Brown College. So, yeah, so in 2002, after a 1998 to, through 2002 tenure of Dolores Cross, the school lost its accreditation. She was the president. She was the president. It was a lot of financial mismanagement going on, using financial aid money wrong. So basically, the uh, Southern Association of Colleges and Schools revoked their accreditation. And as you know, and as your listeners would know, well, you don't have accreditation through SACS for a Southern school, a Southern college, and all colleges and schools are accredited through SACS in the South. You don't have eligibility for financial aid or for any kind of federal funding. So that money dries up immediately. And therefore, you don't have, you know, students can't afford to go to school. You're not getting any grant money. You're not getting in that funding that you would normally get and expect. So the school basically is not technically shut down, but it's essentially shut down because, mm -hmm. you know, they have probably fewer than 50 students. Uh, none of them get financial aid. None of them get fin none of them get federal financial aid. They may get loans or something uh -huh. like that, but they, they don't get federal financial aid. Uh, the school is uh, a, a fraction of what it was in terms of its um, property and where where it is. The, the footprint, the footprint. If you go by the football field, which was built in, which was dedicated in 1996 for the Olympics, and they played Olympic soccer there, it looks just like a war zone. So 
to drive by Morris Brown College is to kind of just to see uh, a, a failure of, of leadership, a failure of academic promise. And just it's sad just to kind of see that, you know, now, you know, they have a, a new leader who's on social media a lot. He's always, you know, traveling and trying to raise money to get the school accredited, to get the school uh, back on, you know, on, on, on solid ground. So and, but that's going to be a long struggle. It's mm-hmm. been 2002 since they lost accreditation. Um, you know, they were in so much debt. They having a hard time raising money. They've always had a hard time raising money. And, you know, at one point, you know, this school probably had, you know, two or three thousand students, probably 20 25 years ago. Now 48, I now think. Now about 48 students, yeah. 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 Well, this, so the, the, the interim president you're speaking of, his name is Kevin James. Mm-hmm. He says it's going to be accredited within 12 to 18 months. But this is accreditation from the Transnational Association of Christian Colleges and Schools. What's the difference in that and SACS, which you mentioned earlier? Uh, well, SACS is kind of like, you know, I guess The gold SACS, standard? It's, yeah, it's kind of the major leagues of, of accreditation. All Southern schools, University of North Carolina, University of Georgia, Spelman, Morehouse, they're all accredited by SACS. That's what you want to be accredited by. Um, the transnational is a it's an accrediting agency for Christian schools. It's not SACS. There's probably a limited amount of federal funding that you can get, but it's still not SACS. It's still you're not a SACS affiliated school. Um, when I mentioned when I uh, corrected you, and I apologize for that. When I mentioned that there were ten HBCUs, the reason that there are ten the reason that there are nine listed HBCUs is that the federal government doesn't recognize Morris Brown. Because they're not accredited. Oh, sex. So right. that's why you have nine instead of 10 in Georgia. Well, so now Kevin James says it's going to work. It's going to be accredited within 12 to 18 months. They are on a capital campaign to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're at $260,000 on the way to $5 million. So yeah. how realistic is this goal, do you think? It's going to be tough. I mean, you can look. Um, you know, about 250, 300 miles north to Greensboro, North Carolina, Bennett College. Mm-hmm. Bennett College was in the same situation. Last year, uh, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, this year. Well, yeah, last year. Mm-hmm. They raised $8 million. They raised about $9 million of an $8 million goal because they were in, in, in threat of losing their accreditation to SACS. They raised that money, but SACS still revoked their accreditation because they didn't feel that they had a sustainable model for sustaining that money. So it's just like if if you can't pay your rent and I give you $500, to pay your rent, what are you going to do next month when you when I when you spent that five hundred dollars? So that's basically what Sachs was saying to Bennett College. So Bennett College is now suing Sachs because they raised the eight million dollars and they they weren't given their accreditation back. And now they are accredited by Sachs, but it's going through court now. But they're also trying, as as you mentioned with Morris Brown, to get that transnational accreditation, which as a poor Christian school. Now, Ernie, your own newspaper reported in 2015 that graduation rates in HBCUs lower than 20 percent, a lot of financial challenges. Are these just happening for HBCUs or is this other small private colleges? They're all tuition dependent. Yeah, for yeah. The most I mean, part. all well, uh, uh, there are more public um, HBCUs and private HBCUs um, for your for your listeners. But yeah, it, this is happening at small colleges. I mean, HBCUs are under a greater microscope, particularly in the north, in the south. Because, you know, they have such a great influence on on African-Americans in the South and building the black middle class in the South. So we know about HBCUs. So you get, you know, you get series and stories from Eric and I about them. But it's happening at all small colleges, all small colleges. There have been, you know, for all for every HBCU that's closed over the last 20 years, there's been a a white school that's closed over the last 20 years. So, you know, it's just not something that's endemic to HBCUs. It's just, it probably hurts a little bit more because of the purpose that they serve and, and, and what they mean to the culture and to um, the communities that they serve. So it may hurt a little bit more. 
Um, but it's happening at a lot of places. And this is one of the, the cases made that there was a, for a long time, that was the only choice for black students. Now there are many, many yeah. choices. So there's no longer the same sign of kind of filial bond or, you know, the kind of financial bond that many people once had. Yeah. there. I mean, I was having a conversation, if I can get personal a little bit. I went to a North Carolina Central University, which is a historically black college in North Carolina, in Durham, North Carolina. And we just tore down our male dormitory called Chili Hall. It had been around since 1951. And I lived there. And, and it was the only male dormitory on campus for, you know, since 1951. So every man that went to North Carolina Central University from 1951 to about 2002 lived in that dormitory. They tore it down recently. And a lot of people are upset about the fact that they tore it down. But the reason that they tore it down was because the building was obsolete. And when you have a building that is obsolete like that, regardless of how historic it is, it's not going to attract students that you want at that school. Students now want dormitories with suites. Mm-hmm. They want co-ed dormitories. They want co-eds. They want dormitories with cafeterias in them, which that building, as as much as we love that building, did not have. So HBCUs have to put themselves in a position to compete with white schools, to compete with rich, small schools, to get these top students. Because, yeah, at one point when I was going to college, you know, well, not when I was going to college. I could have gone to any college I wanted to. But at, at some point, North Carolina Central University was a destination college for a lot of black people in North Carolina. Now it is not. Now, I, you know, kids can go to UNC or Duke or, you, you know, UNCG just as easily and get more money, more benefits. You know, so these schools have to start competing um, for these top students. So it's not the only place you can go anymore. So therefore, it becomes more difficult to raise money. More, more difficult to be attractive, and you got to come up with ways to be that. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, the idea of the single gender or the single sex college and competing in the contemporary universe in the same neighborhood as Morris Brown, we have Morehouse College. Uh, this year, just recently, approved transgender student enrollment in their new policy. So transgender students can enroll. Uh, they are there for the 2020 semester. And students who are currently enrolled are not affected by the policy. Now, this is a major step for the college, considering that it was dedicated to the education of African-American yeah. men. Well, so what has the response been? Uh, the response has been uh, mixed, I think. You know, if you look on social media, a lot of a lot of students are upset about it, or a lot of alums are upset about it. Because, as you said, Morehouse College was founded on a certain principle, uh, to educate black men. You know, black men um, were not being educated. or Well, they were being educated. But black men, this was a, a special place for them. It's a place that, you know, birthed Martin Luther King Jr., Samuel Bowles Cook, Spike Lee, so many, so many great men who uh, who have done great things in America. Not to say that you know men who are gay or transgender don't belong there, but it's a different step. It's a it's, it's taking the school in a different direction, and that's going to be a lot of that's a lot of change for a lot of people, and a lot of people have to come to that exception to that expectation that this is going to be changed and it's going to be tough. I mean, Spelman is going through the same thing with their students in terms of accepting uh, transgender students. They started in 2017, started in 2017, just like, you know, and I think a lot of the, um, the prominent significant all female schools in the Northeast have been doing that for years. And Spelman kind of just kind of followed that path. Single sex schools have to be open to kind of 
looking at that as people start identifying themselves in different ways. And on the other side, there have been people who said, this is, doesn't go far enough. There are exemptions exactly. here. Exactly. That, you know, yeah. if somebody is transitioning, mm -hmm. they can't be a student. If they're transitioning male to female, yeah, they exactly. couldn't be a student. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. Well, the culture is certainly more comfortable with having conversations surrounding LGBT. Yeah. And as we move forward on national and political policies with the history of Morehouse's tradition, do you think it's going to ultimately help or hurt the university? I, I don't know if it'll help or help. I mean, help or hurt. I don't think it'll hurt. I don't think anything will hurt more. I mean, Morehouse College or or Spelman College because they're two very you know good schools uh, with you, good reputations. Interesting point here. I mean, there are a number of small HBCUs that have financial and academic challenges. H five have closed since 1989. So, what are the bigger ones like Spelman and Morehouse doing that others have not? Well, Spelman and Morehouse, let, let's let's look at them as private schools. They're private schools. They are small. You know, they are, you know, Clark Atlanta has more students. Georgia State has more black students than every HBCU in the country, actually. actually. Morehouse and Spelman are special in a sense that they have alums who um, support. Give back. Who give back. I mean, not, you know, Claflin College gives back. Their alums give back at about a 50% clip, which is unprecedented. Only about four HBCUs get back at about 20%, Spelman being one, um, which is really good, really good. I mean, um, I think on average, HBCU alums get back about 3%, which is very, very bad. But Morehouse and Spelman have alums, and they have reputations. They have solid track records of, of, of placing students in graduate schools, placing students in good programs after college. Uh, placing students in good jobs after college, and they have good reputations, and they can they sustain those reputations. Um, you walk on their campuses, and they they let you know that you're on Morehouse and Spelman's campus, which I think a lot of HBCUs don't do. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, public HBCUs are in a different boat. You know, you have North Carolina A and T, which has thirteen thousand students, Howard, Florida A and M, my school, North Carolina Central University, all of which have in excess of 10,000 students. So you have these large HBCUs that have state funding that are doing very well financially, and they're in, in no danger of, of, of being lost. My guest is AJC race and culture reporter Ernie Suggs. We're talking about the history and legacies of HBCUs. Atlanta's Morris Brown College is currently fighting to regain accreditation. So, Ernie, let's look. But you talked a little bit about the legacy earlier, but let's look at how the black education system helped build this middle class that we know today. Yeah, I mean, you know, the first HBCU, uh, Cheney University, or uh, people argue that uh, Lincoln, Cheney was founded in 1837, Lincoln was founded in 1856, um, both in Pennsylvania. Shaw University was founded in 1865 in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is the first HBCU in the South. So if you look at that, if you look at those three uh, years, 1865 is right after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And right after the Civil War, during Reconstruction, all of these HBCUs started popping up. And these are HBCUs that are freeing, that are teaching the sons and daughters of former slaves and slaves. So you're, you're automatically, and you know, obviously the educational system wasn't as advanced as it should have been or could have been, but you are creating a network of colleges of over a hundred colleges that are protecting and educating these former slaves and building something, building a black middle class. Um, I keep going back to my HBCU. But there was a discussion on our Facebook page about, you know, what generational curses have you broken? Mm -hmm. And by the, that, what that question means is that, you know, 
Well, the answer to a lot of that question was that I was the first person in my family to go to college. And you, when you consider that the first HBCU started in 1837, and you still have a large majority of students on black college campuses who are still the first people in their family to go to college. That's amazing. And that automatically changes your family's trajectory. It changes the path of your family because, you, you know, you're going from high school graduates and, you know, jobs that are getting by that are just getting by to being able to go to graduate school, being able to get a job at a Fortune 500 company, being able to go and teach or do something productive. And when I first moved to Atlanta, somebody told me that what explains Atlanta is the presence of HBCUs, that there is this, you know, educated black middle class Mm -hmm. that does not exist in such plentiful form in other cities. Mm -hmm. And that there was also that was part of the basis of the foundation of the civil rights movement. You had an educated class of people. What what role do you think that that has played? It played a tremendous role. I mean, it, not only in Georgia, but in Alabama, um, a lot of the people who were leaders of the civil rights movement, but a lot of them had been HBC graduates or HBC students. The Atlanta student movement right here in Atlanta is, you know, that kind of basically sustained the civil rights movement here in Atlanta, although Martin Luther King Jr. graduated from Morehouse College. 1960, February 1st, 1960, at North Carolina A&T, which is my college's rival, but I have to give them credit for starting the sit-in movement They with four students at North Carolina A&T. Bennett College, you know, the ladies of Bennett College played a very, very integral role in helping with the sit-in movements in Greensboro and kind of spurring that whole thing. These are all HBCU students. These are all HBCU graduates. So they played a tremendous role in, in, in helping to find and shape the civil rights movement. And the fact that Atlanta has so many HBCUs in a, such a concentrated area, <clears throat> this is the most concentrated area of HBCUs in the country. It made a difference to have all that black intellectual power in one central place to kind of spur and spark this movement. So this podcast series has ended. You've ended the. Well, I'm sure you're going to continue to report well, yeah, on this. We're gonna, but, yeah, yeah. but after working on this series, what do you see as the future of these historic colleges? You know, we already made the point where people have so many choices now. Fifty years ago, ninety percent of all black college students went to black colleges. Yeah. Now ninety yeah. percent are at mostly white schools. So. Yeah. I don't have the dire outlook that some of the experts have. Um, I think a lot of the HBCUs are going to survive. I mean, as a matter of fact, over the last two years, the last set of data that we have from 2017, HBCU enrollment is up 2.1%. So it's gone up from um, 292,000 to 298,000, which is a little bit under 300,000 students. Uh, Each of the nine HBCUs in Georgia, seven of the nine HBCUs in Georgia between 2016 and 2017 have seen increases in enrollment. Savannah State and I think Albany State have seen declines. So I think that, you know, I think we're going to be okay. Race and culture reporter Ernie Suggs. He collaborated with educational reporter Eric Sturgis on a series on the health of HBCUs for the AJC. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought.
We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. It's Been a Minute is one of my favorite podcasts. Former NPR politics reporter Sam Sanders is the host of the weekly show with smart, funny, lively talk about politics and pop culture. Sanders is also one of few black and openly gay hosts in digital media. He says his goal is to have conversations that move us in the right direction. And now you can hear them on GPB. It's Been a Minute is a fresh addition to the weekly lineup airing Saturdays at 2. Sam Sanders recently spoke with my colleague Leah Fleming. He did not, by the way, grow up listening to public radio in the backseat of his parents' car. But he does remember listening to the gospel station. So um, I was raised by a strict Pentecostal church organist, and the only music that we heard in uh, the house and in the car was gospel music. Uh, There was no news radio. There was nothing but, like, Jesus music. So I didn't discover public radio until I began to drive my mother around, (laughs) and then I turned the dial, and I found, I think it was weekend all things considered and i said i like that and i kept listening but i was not a backseat baby (laughs) (laughs) so she got to hear npr what did she think you know what she finally came around after she heard one episode of this american life that profiled one of the ministers whose music she played for us growing up and she was like oh they talk about this too i like it (laughs) see it's for everybody everybody oh that's so cool All right. So you are from Texas. And I've read that you've said in Texas, we're particular about trying to see people for who they are and look past first impressions. And I'm wondering, how do you do that? Look past first impressions? Yeah, I think it's honestly just active. It's it's active listening. I think that we have space in my show to have conversations with folks that kind of peel back that top layer and keep asking why and keep looking for motivations. I think as a Texan, uh, we are very used to people that don't know us or our state to kind of characterize us and give us caricatures and stereotypes. And Texas is this big, sprawling, diverse state where the cities aren't the country and the farms aren't, you know, the valleys. Everything is can be different here. And I think that, like, as someone who spreads the gospel of Texas and says it's everything at the same time. I really want to take that approach to the folks that we have on the show and talk to on the show and say, you know, people contain multitudes. And it's my job, you know, as a host to kind of draw that out. Yeah. What about drawing it out of yourself? Because you certainly are uh, unique to public radio, I would say, being um, a a black man, a gay man um, and, and loving public radio. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, it's, it's, I don't, I try not to think about it too much. I think, like, I'm here. I like this job. I like what I'm doing. And I think that, like, for the longest time, there have been listeners to public radio of all stripes. You know, we reach all of the country. We talk to conservatives and liberals and black people and white people and brown people and all kinds of folks. And the listeners have always been there. I don't think that they've always heard themselves back on the airwaves. So I don't I don't see myself being on the radio in this format as something groundbreaking. I just kind of think that it's maybe perhaps we're catching up to our actual audience. How did this show come to be? I heard it was born over beer, pizza and anger. It was, you know, so I covered the 2016 election for NPR. And over the course of my turn there, I helped launch the NPR politics podcast. Um, So I was one of the first 
co-host with Tamara Keith, a White House correspondent, and our good friend Brent Bachman, a producer at NPR, he had the idea for the politics podcast. He kind of launched it. And we go way back. Um, we've been friends at NPR since I started there back in 2009. Uh, I was off the trail for a few days after a campaign trip to God knows where. I forget. But I was having uh, pizza and beer with Brent and his girlfriend and some other friends. And I was just like, I'm tired of all of these things. And I don't know if I want to keep doing this. Da, 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 da. And Brent said, well, how about once you're done covering the election, we just launch a new show. And I said, sure, why not? And uh <laughs> After that, Brent kind of got some wheels turning, and uh, we had the space and time after the election to spend a good six months cooking up this new show. And so it has some of the DNA of the NPR Politics Podcast in it, but it also goes a bit further. We don't just talk about politics. We talk about whatever seems interesting that week. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, these are really uh, divisive times, to say the least. And if you pay attention to all this news or your social media feed by the end of the week. Many of us are just emotionally exhausted. And then you turn on, it's been a minute, and I'm wondering, how are you navigating the news-weary listener on your show? Yeah, I think um, the underlying emotion in everything that we do on the show is optimism. We want to talk about the world and current events and the news of the week in a way that is not defeatist in a way that is not giving up and we accomplish that by talking about the big and the small the heavy and the light the funny and the serious and throughout all of it we aren't afraid to laugh at ourselves uh, I have a lot of a fellow journalists on the show every week and we have fun because we aren't afraid to throw up our hands sometimes and just say this makes no sense to me either like last week we had a long conversation about whatever was going on with Denmark and in moments like that, you just got to take off your hat and, be, and say, I do not know. I actually don't know. But let's talk about it to the best that we can. So, yeah, we are optimistic, cheerful folks who aren't afraid to giggle. Uh, and then you throw in some pop culture in there as well. Yeah. So we really kind of run the gamut. We usually have a pretty uh, heavy discussion of the politics of the week in the first part of our show. But we also talk about whatever song I'm into that week. And then we go to our quiz game portion of the show called Who Said That, where we break down funny quotes from the week from whoever in the world said it, a politician or actor or whoever. Um, and then we also have a lot of listeners involved in the show as well. Every week we end the show by having listeners share with us. Uh, them talking about the best parts of their week. And it can be a birthday or a vacation or a graduation, whatever. We want people to know that uh, that, is just, uh, that is just as important to your week as whatever the president tweeted, you know? And, and, and like those things can be celebrated too. I really love that. I think that's the best part, hearing from the listeners. Yeah, it is really, really fun. I, you know, I actually used to do that on Facebook a lot. Every Friday I would post to my Facebook page to my friends, hey, tell me the best part of your week because I wanted some portion of social media to not be mean and sarcastic. And I liked it so much online, I figured, well, let's put it on the radio too, see how it works out. And it worked out. All right. Well, Sam Sanders, you are an NPR correspondent. You are the host of the show. Also, it's been a minute. By the way, where did that name come from? It's been a minute. I was at a wedding reception talking to the sister of the groom about how hard it was for us to pick a name for the show. And as she's drinking a glass of champagne, she says, you know what a phrase all the kids use? It's pretty fun. It's been a minute. And I was like, yeah, you're right. 
And she's like, it kind of means it's time to catch up. And I was like, I know. And she was like, that kind of speaks to the vibe of your show. And I said, okay, sure, yeah, cool. So, yeah, that was it. <laughs> I even forget her name as I'm telling you the story, but the idea was not my own. <laughs> but it's been a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's NPR correspondent and podcast host Sam Sanders speaking with GPB's Morning Edition host, Leah Fleming. You can now hear Sam's show, It's Been a Minute, Saturdays at 2, here on GPB. Georgia native Eve Hoffman teaches poetry at Emory University. Her most recent book, Memory and Complicity, is a collection of autobiographical poems that tell the story of a young girl named Eve who grew up by the Chattahoochee River. Eve stopped by On Second Thought to add a few recommendations to our Southern reading list. It's our series of authors and readers sharing books that define and reflect the South. Here she is. I am Eve Hoffman, a sixth-generation Georgian, a poet for the last 15 years. Today, I've chosen books in three different genres, a novel, book of poetry, and a book of narrative nonfiction. I'll begin with Dorothy Allison's Bastard Out of Carolina, written in 1993 a book I do not recommend for bedtime reading. This story of love and abuse, hardship and moments of happiness in a rural southern white family has its origin in Allison's life. It unfolds through the eyes of the girl-child bone. The family is poor. The mother marries into a wealthy family, which is not necessarily an easy thing. Her life, Bone's life, was really tough and filled with physical and sexual violent abuse from her stepfather. It was also filled with the guilt that came along with that. But Bone also had some really lovely, beautiful moments. I'm going to read you a few little pieces from the book. I worked in Alma's garden, saving what I could of her herbs and flowers. This was after puppies had chewed them up. And put in some seedlings and cuddlings Raylene brought by. The days were a gift, long and warm, the nights quiet and cool. I slept dreamlessly and woke up at peace. I'd planned to go off on a picnic, had packed a cloth bag with a bottle of tea and lemons, and was spreading bread with peanut butter to go with it. The puppies had gotten into the kitchen and were tumbling over themselves to beg me for treats. I gave them each one teaspoon of peanut butter and dragged them out on the porch to watch them chew and yawn and try to lick the tops of their mouths. Like I say, it's not bedtime reading, but it is extraordinary. The next book I want to talk about is by Natasha Trethaway. Atlanta people may know her as the as a winner of the Pulitzer Prize and the 
Poet Laureate of the United States. Her newest book is called Thrall, published in 2012. And I must admit, I had to look up the definition of thrall. It's the state of being in someone's power or having great power over someone, slave, servant, or captive. These poems explore Trethaway's own interracial background alongside race and race-mixing history in the Americas, both North and South. Her black mother and white father illegal in the Mississippi of her youth. Many of these poems are rooted in paintings and photographs. The book, dedicated to her aging father, is also a love story. And finally, I recommend an author that only recently have I become familiar with, Trudier Harris. Her book, Summer Snow, Reflections from a Black Daughter of the South, published in 2003. It's a series of essays that are at both at once historical and personal. The contents page in this book reads like a story in itself, and it invites you to open the book anywhere. Fishing is a chapter, the ubiquitous hair, the price of desegregation. There's a chapter called Black Nerds. And one of my favorites is Porch Sitting as a Creative Southern Tradition. Another lovely chapter is called Cotton Picking Authority. I will read just a little from that. Anyone who is the daughter or son of black parents and grandparents born in the South in the first five decades of the 20th century is subjected to endless tales about the plight those parents and grandparents suffered in comparison to what their offspring have had to endure, which the parents generally view as a less physically difficult life. Validating their experiences usually boils down to an essential phrase that might have slight variations in its delivery. You ain't never picked no cotton. You never had to pick cotton. So, if that phrase does not emerge in the conversation, general references to the hardship of working in cotton will serve to illustrate the relatively, quote, easy life descendants have in comparison to the lives of their parents. Cotton Pickin' Authority posits, first of all, that physical labor is preferable to brain work, or at least that brain work should occupy a comfortable second place in the hierarchy. There is a certain romance surrounding the people who each spring would get out of bed at four in the morning, hitch up their horses and mules, and be in the fields by early light to begin the process of breaking new ground for seeds. They worked all day, literally from can't see to can't see, and were still able to appreciate their families for a short while before they retired to bed to begin the process all over again the next day. And of course, you pair that with a chapter called Black Nerds. I'll end with a few lines from Harris's preface, which are good examples of my expectations for a good read. They take me to an unexpected place. It's a good story and language which leaves no doubt about where I am. Blacks in the era knew instinctively what they could and could not do in Tuscaloosa. We could shop in a white-owned business, such as a clothing store or a shoe store. 
but we could not be leisurely in trying on merchandise. Consequently, many of us grew up with ill-fitting shoes that left cosmetic scars or had more serious consequences in the way we walked. Thank you again, DPB, for having me. I hope I've challenged some of you to read an author you may not be familiar with. That was Atlanta-based poet Eve Hoffman teaching poetry this semester at Emory University. We use music from Blue Dot Sessions for this edition of our Southern Reading List. You can find more from the series at gpbnews.org. Thanks so much for listening today. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nicewanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Krausman, Jessica Lowell, and Alexis Thomason. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Back again tomorrow with more of On Second Thought.